we didn't like Facebook playing with our algorithm and radicalizing people, how do we feel about a foreign company that, whether they like it or not, have to obey a communist totalitarian regime? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Huck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players that run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Wednesday, December 21st. Today, Julia Yaffe joins me to discuss what the hell is going on with TikTok, the popular social video app that might just be a Trojan horse for China's geopolitical ambitions. Plus, on the 300th day of the war in Ukraine, Julia weighs in on whether the Russian army is actually losing. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the powers that be. Peter Hamby is still off kite surfing in Mallorca or something. (laughs) So until then, I'm Ben Landy and we've got Julia Yaffe here on the pod. Hey, Julia. Hi. So Julia, you are not just a foreign policy scholar of Russia. You're also incredibly plugged into the national security conversation happening in Washington. So I wanted to talk to you today about what is apparently one of the greatest threats to the U.S., are you a TikTok user? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so here's the thing. I'm 40 and I don't know how to edit video. So I don't know how to like use TikTok in the sense that I don't know how to create TikToks. But I did for a time really enjoy scrolling through TikTok and it, I found it wildly addictive and incredibly funny. And I would spend hours on there. Like I would, I was the person who would get, you know, the little notifications that were like, you've been on here for a long time, Julia Yaffe. It's time (laughs) to like get up and do something else. And I was like, wow, that's fucking embarrassing. Um, But then the more I talked to people in the kind of uh, national security space, the more they were like, you have TikTok on your phone? Are you insane? I just heard enough of that and enough convincing kind of alarmism from American national security officials that I deleted it. Yeah, incredibly, this is one of the few notable areas of bipartisan consensus these days. TikTok is being banned in a bunch of different states. It's being restricted for government employees. It's definitely blocked on military devices. Marco Rubio has introduced a bill to ban the entire app outright in the United States. But Republicans hate this app. And increasingly, Democrats hate this app too. So I'm really curious sort of what you are hearing yourself in Washington these days from your Pentagon sources, from people on the Hill. What do they think about the app and what do they think is going to happen? I mean, the issue with the app is that it has a backdoor. And the fact that if they wanted, the Chinese government and the CCP could get in and access your data through a backdoor in the TikTok app and into your phone. What I do think is interesting to just zoom out a little bit is generally 
in this era of pretty poisonous partisanship, often the thing that brings the two parties together is this kind of almost Luddite anti-technology sentiment. Before it was Facebook that united Republicans and Democrats. Now, Democrats hate Twitter as much as Republicans hated Twitter. These technology companies regularly draw the ire of both parties. For sure. There's a Luddite dimension to this. There's a Red Scare dimension to this. But it's true that this company, which um, claims that it's separate from the Chinese government, they say they have servers in the U.S., that there isn't this backdoor. Most experts will tell you that there is and that any company that's based in China, at the end of the day, is going to have to report to the Chinese Communist Party. And there's all kinds of things they can do with this app besides just stealing user data or looking at what you're watching on your phone. I mean, theoretically, they can also put their finger on the scale of the algorithm to gin up hate or anger around protests or divisive social issues. Exactly. It's not just the user data, which we know China loves to grab from the U.S. Um, there have been various hacks traced back to China, various, um, example, government agencies that have been hacked. But if we didn't like Facebook playing with our algorithm or YouTube playing with our algorithm and radicalizing people, and those are, you know, American companies, how do we feel about a foreign company that, whether they like it or not, have to obey a communist totalitarian regime? I've, you know, heard from friends who are also addicted to TikTok and have not deleted it from their phones that, you know, they'll be scrolling it and they have, you know, their tastes definitely don't include this, but they'll suddenly get vaccine disinformation in their thread. And all they want generally to see is like funny dances and cat videos. And they're like, wait, I would never have chosen vaccine disinformation, right? It gives a foreign country, a foreign government, uh, a tremendous amount of power. And as we saw in 2016, that can have a tremendous amount of influence, even if it's at the margins. We saw in 2016 what the Russian government was able to do with Facebook. They were able to create fake groups and fake events and uh, manipulate the algorithm through these fake groups and ads and fake persona by exploiting pre-existing social tensions in areas where the election was close to kind of push things toward Trump. We saw after 2016, you know, after the U.S. government basically unveiled that plot, we saw other countries get in the mix, right? After 2016 and the elections of 2018, 2020, various reports from the American intelligence community say that now it's not just Russia interfering in our elections. It's China, it's Iran, it's Turkey, it's various other countries. And this is yet another way for another country to do it. The New York Times had an incredible anecdote the other day in a story about the security threat posed by TikTok, where they noted that the White House, at the very beginning of the Ukraine war, had invited over all these TikTok influencers and creators to give them a briefing about the conflict. They basically wanted to um, get them to put out the White House perspective on the war. Meantime, all of these White House staffers themselves don't have TikTok on their phones because it's banned, because they see TikTok as a security threat. But they also see it as a channel that they can exploit. And that's a um, that's an uncomfortable ambiguity. I think it also speaks to the ambiguity with China in general, where we engage China with so much international trade. And simultaneously, we've been trying to disengage from them in all sorts of ways to separate our economies. The Chinese are pulling back. We're trying to reshore 
manufacturing of, of critical technologies and semiconductors and all of these things. And at the same time, both the United States and China are racing to find footholds in other countries around the world, in South America, in Southeast Asia, in Africa. Uh, it really does feel like another Cold War. Or I would say another kind of uh, age of empires where, you know, these capitalist empires, and I would call China this weird hybrid capitalist empire, right? Like they're communist ostensibly in ideology, but they do have this kind of strange version of capitalism going. They're looking for, almost in this like 19th century way, everybody's looking for other markets, other places to get resources. And one of the places that this is really happening again is the African continent. And you have uh, China competing for basically places where they can draw resources and find new markets, the U.S., but also Russia, Turkey. Yeah, in some ways it's, you know, what's old is new again. And you're seeing these uh, these powers jockeying for allies or client states, whatever you want to call it. It does seem vaguely familiar. I know you recently spoke to the UN ambassador to Kenya. What is the view from the African continent regarding that kind of engagement from China? Do they view them as like a friendly countervailing force to American and European influence, or do they view them with suspicion? Well, the sense I got from Ambassador Kimani was that they view all of us with suspicion, and kind of rightly so. The Chinese government comes in with lots of strings attached that are pretty well hidden, and they come into countries that have tremendous need for infrastructure, for investment, and they get things done really fast. But then it turns out that you're pretty heavily indebted to China. And then all of a sudden they own one of your ports or one of your mines and off you go. The U.S. offers far better terms, but, you know, they talk and they talk about these good terms, but it takes forever with the Americans. And, that, and that's some of the impatience where the Americans are constantly talking about Look, don't do business with the Chinese. They have this these usurious terms. You're going to get into trouble with them long term. Do business with us. And the, and a lot of these African countries are saying, sure, but they're actually building these bridges and the roads. You're just talking about it. Whereas the U.S., especially when it's going through agencies like USAID, is bound by all these government regulations. We have to do feasibility studies and... It produced this kind of report and that kind of report, and there's this kind of oversight and that kind of oversight. And so it takes years and years and years before you can even break ground on said bridge or road. When you're the country in need of said bridge or road, you kind of want to go with the contractor who's going to get it done faster and cheaper. At the same time, there's a sense of like, before we were exploited and we were colonies, and now you're all competing for our business or you're competing for our time and attention and our for the privilege of investing in us. So that's a good thing. And it and it's quite a change from how things used to be. Yeah. If there's one thing you can say for China, they they build bridges quickly, even if they sometimes fall over. Whereas we've been trying to ban TikTok for like two to four years and uh, still haven't managed to get that done. When we get back, it's been 300 days of war in Ukraine. We'll talk about the latest after this break. At 
Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Julia, it's the end of the year, and it's been about 300 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. I saw Zelensky was out in the far eastern side of the, the country in a city that Ukraine had recently retaken from the Russians and had been defending. He's right on the front lines, defiantly pinning medals on soldiers. Meanwhile, Putin in Moscow is giving a speech acknowledging, quote, extremely difficult times that they're facing and, quote, unusual challenges. Do you foresee any movement towards any kind of resolution this coming year? Or does it feel like we're just grinding through more of a stalemate? Well, that's the million dollar question. I think in the near term, there's going to be more grinding and more kind of World War One style trench warfare and this kind of very incremental progress in either direction. Then the ground is going to freeze some more and it's going to be easier for these armored personnel carriers and tanks and trucks, which are important not just for, you know, going into battle, but behind them, supplying them, supplying the people and the tanks and stuff going into battle. And those can't really move across the mud that we were seeing in the fall. In the long term, everybody I talked to in Washington keeps uh, bringing up the Spanish Civil War. It's like the metaphor du jour for some reason, uh, which is interesting because this is what I did my senior thesis in college on. And was what I was thinking about at the very beginning of the war 10 months ago, because I was afraid that the Ukrainians would be like the Republicans, the good guys in uh, the Spanish Civil War, who were supported kind of by the West and kind of by the Soviet Union, all of whom gave them just enough support to not lose, but not enough support to win. So they kind of dragged the war out, made it bloodier, but they lost in the end. And so I was always worried that that was what Ukraine would be facing. But now, fast forward 10 months, and the Spanish Civil War, weirdly, is kind of on everybody's lips because they're comparing Ukraine to the Francoists, the fascists, not in the sense of ideology, but in the sense of the fascists eventually won. It was a bloody, horrible, grinding war. It took three years, but bit by bit by bit, they were able to take all of Spain, including some pretty difficult terrain. They were just able to bite off chunk after chunk of territory until they conquered the whole country. And that's kind of what a lot of people in Washington see in Ukraine's future. To keep going with that analogy, I mean, not only are the Ukrainians sort of unlike the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War who, who were um, supported enough to succeed, but not enough to win, there had been this fear that the West would eventually tire of its support for Ukraine, that maybe when Republicans came into power in Congress, that they might push to reduce spending packages uh, supporting Ukraine. In fact, the new spending package that's before the White House shortly, um, I think it just needs to be signed off by the House, has another $45 billion in aid for Ukraine, which seemed like sort of a surprise to the upside after there was a lot of talk about whether the GOP was going to want those numbers to come down. 
What has the response been like that you've heard in Washington and in Kiev to that? Well, I don't think it's much of a surprise because it's still the old Congress where the president's party still has a majority. And it's not a surprise that they would want to push that through before they lose the majority. Yeah, Americans might be tiring of it, but I I don't know that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy still necessarily speak for them. That isn't fatigue. That is pretty vehement anti-Ukrainian rhetoric. Fatigue doesn't always necessarily translate into voting down aid for Ukraine. To build off of that point, I think that voter fatigue might actually be a good thing for Ukraine because nobody's paying attention and and it just doesn't get a lot of coverage and it just kind of sails through Congress just because the bulk of the mainstream of both parties agree on it and it just kind of passes anyway. And the less voters care about it, the less they notice and the more it can kind of sneak under the radar. The second point is if the White House were smart about it, They would message it as helping Ukraine through American manufacturing and American manufacturing jobs. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago when I wrote about the munitions shortage in Ukraine. We've basically run through a lot of what we could give Ukraine without cutting into our own kind of strategic reserve where the Pentagon feels okay with all of its contingency plans. Pretty soon, they're going to have to start restocking all of that. All of that stuff is made in the U.S. A lot of that money that has already been allocated by Congress that's going to be signed off on right now, again, that's money that's going to be spent in the U.S. on things that will be made in U.S. factories by American workers. So one example I used is javelins, right? They were like the weapon of the early days of the Ukraine war, you saw Ukrainian soldiers dancing around with the javelins, shooting Russian tanks, Russian APCs. Javelins are made by Lockheed Martin, an American company, at a plant in Troy, Alabama, which is in a county that Donald Trump won by 20 points in 2020. They've already doubled their production of javelins, which is still not enough. And to ramp up production further, they're going to have to build out more factory space and hire and train more workers. Those are good paying jobs in a very red district. So to summarize that, you know, but again, I don't trust the Democrats to message well on anything, but I would be like, hey, (laughs) you know, this money isn't, it's not like we're sending pallets of cash to Ukraine, where a lot of this money is just, is staying in the U.S., Julia, last question for you before you go. There was an anonymous Biden official in a recent New York Times story who noted that Russian officials, the U.S. government believes, are conflicted about whether they want to launch a new big military offensive this winter. You noted, of course, that the terrain right now it's frozen. At some point, it'll start to thaw. It seems like the Russian forces are pretty depleted. But there were also these hundreds of thousands of people who were supposedly drafted in recent months And I'm curious, because I have not been following this as closely as you, where are they? Are are, are most of them in Ukraine? Are they still training in Russia? Has a certain percentage of them fled? Like, what has happened to that population? A lot of them are in Ukraine, and a lot of them are still training and will be going to Ukraine. People have pointed out that a lot of schadenfreude about how poorly equipped they were and how they're going to be useless in the fighting was premature because, yes, they're poorly equipped. Yes, they have no morale. Yes, they're untrained. 
but there's still bodies on the line. The Ukrainians still have to fight their way through them, for lack of a better term. And that it still makes still makes a difference. It still makes it harder for Ukraine. And there are rumors coming out of Moscow that there might be another round of mobilization coming and that that's why the Kremlin has resisted officially declaring the first wave of mobilization from September closed. They kept saying, we don't need to declare it closed because we fulfilled our goals and like why, you know, be redundant to issue a decree stating the obvious. But a lot of people said that the reason they didn't do that is to kind of keep the option open to call up more people. And that has always been worrying because obviously Russia is a much bigger country, a much more populous country than Ukraine, and can essentially throw a lot more meat at the meat grinder, for lack of a better term. Well, that is a dispiriting note to end on. But Julia, I'm always grateful to have you here. Happy Hanukkah, happy holidays, and we'll see you back on here soon. Thanks, Ben. Happy Hanukkah. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 